Hello, everyone. How are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where we have the discussions that inform, entertain, and challenge educators to be the change. I am your host, Dr. Will. And each week, I zoom in someone who's just dope. They're making it happen. And we talk about ideas and strategies on how you can live your best life. And what I mean by that is that you are taking control over your life, your career, and your finances, becoming the CEO of you. And today, my guest is no stranger to us as educators. It is Angela Watts. How are you doing, Angela? I'm good, Dr. Well. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here as well because you, you know, you're doing big things. And, you know, a few years ago when we uh, met up in Atlanta, at ISTE, you know, we talked about this whole consulting piece and getting out there and getting getting paid. And I'm looking at what you're doing now, and I'm like, go ahead. I like it. <laughs> uh, so I wanted you definitely to be a guest on the show. So for those who are watching, uh, will you please introduce yourself? Sure. So um, I'm Angela Watson, and um, I'm one of those people who can't really sum up what I do in a single word, but I, I think the, the closest title is probably instructional coach slash educational consultant. Awesome. So you were an educator for many years, and you stepped out on your own. What made you leave K-12 through education uh, to become an entrepreneur? Well, I did both for a long time. So I started sharing ideas with teachers online in 2003. Um, I would just go online and, you know, message board forums and things like that. And I really enjoyed helping teachers that way. And people told me you should write a book. So I did. I, I published my first book in 2008, um, just sharing the strategies that I used in my own classroom. They were working with my kids. And a school um, locally invited me to come do a full day PD session on it. And I was like, wow, that's kind of amazing. And I, I was hooked that very first day, that one day working with teachers, and I knew that's what I wanted to be doing. That's where I could be making the biggest impact. Because as a third grade teacher, you know, I'm impacting, you know, 20, 25 kids, you know, a, a year. But when you're working with teachers, you're impacting tens of thousands of kids, you know, over the course of a teacher's lifetime. Um, so I, I just really loved that work. I was hooked. I wanted to keep doing it. So I kept blogging, kept writing more books. Um, did more speaking, but it grew to a point where I just couldn't do both things well. You know, teaching is a job that I think, you know, you, you've got to have your whole heart and soul in that job. And it's not fair to let your side hustle keep you from doing the best job you can for kids. And I was reaching that point where I was just feeling sort of torn and feeling pulled in too many directions and I had to make a choice. So it was my husband actually that encouraged me to take the leap um, because he's an entrepreneur. So he knows this life. And, you know, I'm freaking out because I'm like, ah, I've got guaranteed income. I know what I'm going to make, you know, every year for the rest of my life. I've got a pension, you know, what's it going to be like if I don't know how much money I'm going to make each month? And he was like, yeah, that's the whole point, Angela. That's the whole point that you don't know that the possibilities are limitless. There's no ceiling to what you can accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that because, um, you know, I was teaching in Florida. The, the, the teacher pay scale in Florida is not impressive. <laughs> So I knew what I'd be making 20 years from now, but it wasn't too much more than what I was making at that time. So this idea of like limitless possibilities where this whole thing could just go in any direction. And um, that was exciting to me. So that's why I took the leap. It was with his support. Mm. So what does the cornerstone for teachers do 
who are your target audience and what sort of products or services do you offer? So the tagline for my site, which has been the tagline since the very beginning, is practical resources that make teaching more effective, efficient, and enjoyable. So everything that I do is revolving around that, effective, efficient, enjoyable. So um, I have four books. I'm working on the fifth right now. I create printable curriculum resources for teachers. I have online courses. Um, probably the best known course at this point is the 40-hour teacher workweek club. And the purpose of that is to help teachers conquer overwhelm and um, really sort of focus more on the things that really make an impact and let go of the rest. So um, I work with K-12 teachers and um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty wide niche, but because of the range of things I'm doing, I think there's a little bit that can appeal to lots of different people. Mm. So when you and I came up with this idea, because I want to throw this out there to you, because, you know, so many of us, when we decide to think of the side hustle, we go, okay, I'm ready I know I do this well or that well, or I've been presenting at conferences on this. I've been doing that. How do I step out there? How do I package my genius and what of my genius should I actually put out there? So how did you decide, you know, you say you do what you offer, but how did you decide on what would be your genius that you actually shared with the world? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I, th I think it's evolved over the years. In the beginning, I focused just on classroom management because um, that's what teachers were asking about. They were like, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how to, um, you know, get my kids to turn in their work or, you know, my kids are, you know, they're not paying attention when I teach. And I felt like I had a really strong handle on both rapport and relationships with students before that was a big buzzword, you know, in the 90s, that wasn't a, that wasn't a huge thing at that point. Um, at least not where I was teaching and at least not in the circles I was talking in. So I felt like I had a good handle on that and a good handle on, um, on management. You know, my classroom ran really smoothly. And, um, you know, I talked about how to construct a self-running classroom that frees you to teach. So you're sort of taking all these other responsibilities off your plate and just focusing on the, the things that really matter, which is connecting with kids and helping them learn and grow. So that's what it grew out of. But, you know, over the years, classroom management has sort of fallen out of favor, right? Because now we're talking more about, you don't really manage a classroom, you want to lead, you want to be a leader in your classroom, you want to lead kids, you want to empower kids, you know, then the models change and education has changed a lot. Um, and it's changing, I feel like even more quickly, um, you know, in the, in the most most recent couple of years. So um, it, it's really changed over time. And I feel like my passions have changed over time too, because, um, you know, you can only talk about, well, I can only talk about classroom management for so long before I'm like, okay, I said everything I needed to say. Um, and then once I was out of the classroom, I'm like, well, this is not something that I'm doing in my daily work anymore. And so my work needs to be based on something that I am living and breathing. Um, you know, I've, I've been out of the classroom now since 2009, which um, feels crazy to me. It feels like it was yesterday, but it's been a long time. And so I'm not the best person to talk about daily practice anymore. Um, you know, there's nothing that a teacher resents more than someone who hasn't been in the classroom for decades to come in and tell them you know, what they should and shouldn't be doing. So, uh, you know, I've really tried to pass the mic over to people whose daily work is with kids. And my expertise is the stuff that is harder to see when you're in the trenches of that daily work of teaching. It's really hard to keep a big, big perspective when you are bogged down with so many things in that classroom. 
and you've got so many kids and people depending on you, um, it's tough to take that step back and really as what's, what's not working. Um, but I can do that because that's my whole job. My whole job is supporting teachers, figuring out what they need and creating it for them. You know, that's my job is to listen to teachers and figure out, you know, how I can help. So I do that big picture work. I break down, you know, these bigger problems that they're facing into actionable steps and motivating messages for them. And I create these replicable systems so that teachers don't have to do that on top of everything else they're doing. So, um, you know, I sort of moved into more of like the mindset piece. And then now the last couple of years, I've moved more into like mindset and productivity. And that's really what I'm most knowledgeable about. And that's what I'm really studying a lot in my daily life. I think uh, writers and, and, and teachers and speakers, we like to write about things that we know that we're learning, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think when you're a natural teacher, as soon as you learn something, the first thing you do is go teach someone else. Like even before you have it mastered yourself, you're just very excited about it. So a lot of things that I talk about in my podcast and I work with teachers on, these are the very same things that I'm tackling in, in my life that I'm trying to help them tackle in their life. And we're sort of learning and growing together. Mm-hmm. So each of us has you know, our own style, our own way of doing and thinking and making, what should educators expect when they work with you? Um, what should they expect when they work with me? I, the tone that I try to take with teachers is one of motivation and encouragement, but also um, telling them the things they need to hear. Because I, I want to challenge teachers too. And sometimes it's hard to hear things if you're hearing it from a person who you don't trust or who you feel like doesn't get your struggle. So I spend the majority of my time meeting the needs that they identify, that they, you know, fixing the problems that they want solved. And then I'll throw in there something that I'm like, okay, let's also talk about this. because I think this is also an issue that's impacting kids. And I think we need to talk about this too. So, you know, I I try to stay, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not a huge, I've moved away from, let's say, um, sort of like the positivity movement and more into, you know, we need to challenge each other and we, and we need to get real. And that you're not being negative because you're pointing out a problem. And when you're calling other people to come up higher, that's not a bad thing. That's not being negative. That's not being unsupportive. That's actually one of the best things that you can do for people if you're trying to help them. Awesome. Awesome. I like the idea of leveling Uh, people up and that's sort of what season four is also about my podcast and not just about you know you just going to work every day but getting better at what you're doing every day and taking ownership of it to say I want to be better every day and what do I need to do in order to put in the work so it's awesome that you mentioned that so in addition to your books you offer courses and printables and speakers how did you get to this point you know, how did you decide on, okay, how do you decide which products you do and which speaking engagements are the right fit for you? And I asked that because when I spoke with Lavana uh, in my last interview, she spoke about how, you know, in the beginning, you're just out there trying to get those jobs and get your name out there. And that's right. You Not to say you'll take anything, but if the money's coming, you know, hey, I, I'm, you need me, I'm there. But eventually you have to understand that everything, every job isn't right for you. and You can't accept anything, even though you may say, "Ooh, that's $10,000. But if it's not right for you, it's not right for you. So how do you know which jobs are best fit for you and, and, and those that you just have to say no to? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that transition because that, that transition is important and it takes a long time. And generally, it's really hard to see where you are in that transition while you're in the middle of it. And it's not until you look back later and you're like, oh man, I waited way too long to start charging what I'm worth. Um, I think that's a pretty common experience. Um, you know, in the beginning, and I do want to speak to that piece about how in the beginning, you do need to, I think there's some level of hustle and grind that has to happen. There's this whole movement in the entrepreneurial space about, you know, do what you love and, um, you know, you know, it's all about the lifestyle, right? Like, you know, you want to work the minimum number of hours and, um, you know, only do the things you're passionate about. And I, I don't think that's reality in the beginning. And when I see people try to do that in the, in the, in the start of their entrepreneurial journey, they just don't get the traction that they need to because you've got to hustle and grind. You've got to do a lot of things that you don't want to do, especially, you know, before you really start earning an income um, and you have the ability to hire people, you're a one man or a one woman show. I was a one woman show. I did everything in my business until 2014, which is insane. Um, if you think about it, I should have hired way sooner than that. But I sort of wore that like a badge of honor. Like I do it all. I do all the writing. I do all the editing. I do, you know, if something breaks on the website, I fix it. Well, I am not a web developer. Why am I spending 10 hours <laughs> fixing something broken on my site instead of going on Upwork and finding a contractor who can fix it for me? So I sort of had this superhero syndrome, um, you know, where I felt like I had to do it all myself. So um, figuring out that that hustle piece is really important. You've got to be willing to get in there and do it all in the beginning because that's the only way your business is going to take off until you um, you know, you start gaining traction till you have an audience, till you start making money, then you can start being a little bit more selective, but you do have to put in that hard work. And I think that there's always going to be pieces um, that you don't love. Like there's still aspects of my work um, that I'm not crazy about. And that's just reality. You know, there's, there's, that's just what life is, right? So while I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm in a place in my business where I'm only taking on projects and engaged that I'm really passionate about, and then I feel like, you know, I can make a big impact in, um, it took a while to get there, and it's not all fun and games <laughs> every single day. There's still pieces in there that I have ownership of that, that are hard. Um, but I really try to practice what I preach and do fewer things better. So, you know, I've, I've delegated a lot now to team members at this point. I say no to a lot of things. I say no to most things. And I only take on the obligations that I know I can add real value to. I think one of the mistakes that um, a lot of people make in general, but also um, I think teachers and entrepreneurs both sort of fall prey to this, is paying attention only to the yes and trying to say yes to as many things as possible. But you've got to pay equal attention to what you're saying no to because that's equally important, if not more important. All those little things that you are committing to take away your time and energy for your big goals. You got to really know what is going to move your business forward or move your life forward and focus on those things. So, um, you know, that's, that, that would be my advice for someone who's trying to figure out what to take on and what not to take on. If you don't have the traction yet and you're not, you're not close to where you want to be or you, you don't see the forward momentum that you want, hustle and grind a little bit more and then slowly start to be more selective and focus more on the things that you add real value to. And I, I feel like it's an organic process because you start to see where you can make an impact. You know, I've, I've done things, uh, you know, I've created resources for teachers. I'm like, that didn't really resonate. <laughs> they didn't really get that. That didn't, uh, it wasn't a huge need there. That wasn't it. And then I'll create something else and it'll just take off like wildfire. Right. And so that's how I know, Oh, okay. This is what I should be focusing on. This is what's making them the biggest impact. Um, and normally those are the things that I really love and that I'm really passionate about. So it sort of works hand in hand. Mm. So I've spoken with a lot of 
entrepreneurs and have heard from entrepreneurs the need to write a book, the advantages of writing a book because it allows you to expand your reach and it also helps you to, to gain uh, speaking engagements. Earlier you mentioned how you have uh, published uh, with four books and you're working on a new one. You decided to found your own publishing company instead of actually getting your book published by ASCD or Solution Tree, et cetera. Why go that route instead of working with a traditional publisher? You know, I was never interested in the traditional publishing route because, um, gosh, I, my first book, um, it's called The Cornerstone, Classroom Management That Makes Teaching More Effective, Efficient, and Enjoyable. That first book, which I wrote when I was still in the classroom, um, taking pictures in my classroom, what I did in there, because of the forms and the pictures and everything, that book was like 500 pages. It took me a long time to put together. And when it came to the point where I was, you know, thinking about what do I want to do to get this book out there, I realized most, I did the math. And I realized that most, most authors are making like, you know, a, a dollar or less per copy sold. And I did not know that. I think like the general public, most people don't realize how little of a cut authors take. And I thought, I wrote this 500 page book after school. I would teach all day and then come home and write all night and like, I'm not making a dollar a copy. That's insane. So it just never really appealed to me. Now, of course, that was back in 2008. And, you know, there's more options now. There are some fantastic education publishers out there. Um, you know, Dave Burgess, Mark Barnes, they come to mind. Those are people who are really trying to empower their authors, get their names out there, get them speaking gigs, you know, and, and they are trying to split the profits in a more fair way. Um, but generally, traditional publishers don't do that, and they don't even want to work with you now these days unless you have a sizable audience already. So the first thing, I, I've had friends who've done this, the first thing they ask is, how many followers do you have online? You know, what, you know, they want to know what your audience is. But if you're doing all your own audience building and all your own promotion, then what do you need them for? What are they doing? They're just distributing the book. Well, there's a service out there called Lightning Source <laughs> that can print and distribute the book for you. You don't need, a, you don't need a, pop, a publisher to do that anymore if you're doing all the promotion yourself. So that was a big piece of it. It, it was the money piece. Um, it was the fact that I felt like I was going to be doing all the work anyway, so it didn't make sense to have a middleman. And the fact that I just like to have control over my books and the rights to my books. Um, you know, if I want to lower the price and, and discount it for some reason, um, if I want to add in bonus materials, if I want to change something about it, if I want to do a new cover, I just do it. And I, I can just make those decisions based on what I feel like uh, teachers want at that time, what's trending, what's important, um, what fits with me and my brand at the moment. And I don't have to, you know, run this past a corporation and hope that they will go along with it. So anytime someone is thinking about publishing a book, I always advise either self-publish or start your own publishing company, which sounds really complicated and fancy and like a super big deal. And it's not, it's really, really easy. Um, I would recommend that to anyone. It's, it's been a fantastic experience for me and a lot simpler than I thought. Ooh, thank you so much for dropping those <laughs> gems. Uh, another publisher I would recommend is uh, Edu Match Publishing, uh, founded by my homie, Dr. Sarah Thomas. Uh, she's very good yes. in terms of working with people and the money split is fantastic. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, I have said this on podcasts. I have tweeted this out. Any educator out there, unless you are publishing with a type of a publisher that publishes 
let's say other books where you may get a 16,000 advance, which is like basic minimum uh, for those type of books. You do not need to dare touch an education publisher. When I found out you get 15% on the back end, I said, what? So I'm going to do all the writing for maybe three to six months of my life. And all I'm getting is 15% of the back end. No, no, no. I'd rather put that bad boy on Amazon, Kindle, and let Amazon take $3 and I get the rest. I can get paid. Cause That's like right. you said, if I have to build, if you're going off of my Twitter followers or, or what I have on Instagram, I'm going to let my network, my, my tribe build it, build it up for me. You know, put the word out there. I'm not going to sit up. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, what? Ooh, thank you for that, Jim, uh, and, and give <laughs> the advice. Because people need to understand, and this is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast now, is I want educators to truly understand this money game. You know, too many of us are very hush-hush with the money. I'm not asking you about your salary for your district. I can go online and to your state and find out what you're making. All that stuff is public knowledge. But don't get up there and write for these blog, these publications like Air Surge. And I know, yes, I have, yes, Air Surge and Ina Call and all these companies. I'll probably get a lot of blowback one of these days. But you write for these people, and it may raise your status, but you're not getting a check. They're the ones getting paid from your content. You know, and these ambassador programs don't get hyped up because you get a badge for your blog and you get a mug and a T-shirt. They're using your content. They're using your name. They're using your presentations at conferences to grow bigger, to build their audience. And y'all you getting is a T-shirt. Stop it. Get paid <laughs> what you are worth. You just sitting over there like, I'm sorry. That's right. I'm sorry for the tribe. I just had to go there because two of us give away our genius for free. And I just find that to be ridiculous. Um, so now I want to jump into content creation. You know, you have your blog, you have your podcast, and you don't shy away from tackling issues that a lot of educators would just really like, I am not touching that at all, particularly white educators. Do you ever fear or are you afraid that you may alienate current customers or future schools or teachers won't work with you because of your stances on certain issues? I am extremely intentional about what I say and what, and, and what I put out there. So if I put a message out there, I meant it. <laughs> I thought it through really carefully I thought through the consequences really carefully. Um, and I meant what I said. I don't, you know, I'm not one of those people who's just like, well, I don't care. I say what I want. I don't care if I offend people. I do care. I, I probably care more than I should when people think about me. Um, but I, I'm intentional. And I feel like, as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing this disservice to teachers if I only tell them the things that they want to hear. So I do a mix of podcast episodes and social media posts that are encouraging and inspiring and practical. And then I'll also toss something in there that is really challenging to them. So when I talk about um, controversial topics or things that might alienate people, I try to always bring it back to the kids and the impact on students. 
you know, I'm unlikely to just, you know, post a random rant about the president, but I'll talk about things that his administration is doing that's having a negative impact on kids and teachers and schools because that's relevant to the brand, right? That's affecting the work that we're doing in schools and that's, that's affecting the teachers that I'm serving. And I want to look back on this period of our country's history and feel like I took a stand for what I believe is right and that I used my platform for something bigger than myself because what am I doing all of this for? if I can't use this platform to make a difference, right? What's it all for? And I feel like there's a lot of things to be concerned about right now. Um, there's a lot of things to speak out about. But if each entrepreneur just takes one or two issues that they're really passionate about, they're really knowledgeable about, and they use their platform to spread that message, then we're each really doing our part. So for me, my core issue when it comes to the resistance is equity. So I'm going to speak out about rooting out anti-black bias and dismantling oppressive systems. And, you know, black folks have been doing that work for a lot longer than I have. But, you know, the messenger matters. And you and I, will we could be saying the exact same thing. But when you say it, you might be perceived as being aggressive or angry, right? But if I say it, I'm often perceived as I'm, I'm courageous. I'm outspoken. I'm brave, right? So I'm going to use that privilege. I'm going to use the fact that people who may not listen to other voices, they're going to listen to this. Um, you know, if I can use my platform to reach some people who might not otherwise be, they might not, you know, be open to the idea of Black Lives Matter if they don't hear it from someone who looks like them, you know? And people of color have been doing this work for too long. You know, this is my work to do. White people benefit from and uphold these, these oppressive systems. So it's our job to educate one another. It's our job to um, really dismantle these systems. You know, we can't just allow the 15% of the teaching workforce that is people of color to do all this heavy lifting and put the responsibility on them to teach us about diversity and culturally responsive teaching. So I feel like this is my responsibility as a white educator. I need to educate myself on these issues. I need to listen and learn from and pass the mic to people of color to help us educate ourselves. But really, I need to take responsibility for my end. So to tie that into your question about alienating future customers, this is my hill that I'm willing to die on. So if someone doesn't want to support my work, if you don't want to support my work because I offended you over something that I've said in defense of black and brown students, in defense of dismantling white supremacist systems, for kids benefit. So if I've offended you over that, I'm okay with that because everything that I'm saying on my channels and on my podcast is about the kids. So if you're offended, we're both educators. We both care about the kids. Show me how my views are harming students and show me how your opposing views are benefiting students. And then we can have a conversation about it. But up to this point, well, no one's ever taken me up on that invitation. So uh, as long as I feel like I'm speaking up, uh, about what's best for kids, particularly kids of color, I'm going to keep doing that because I think that's essential work to be doing. And we can't, as white educators, we cannot put that workload only on teachers of color. Mm. Okay. We'll pause. <laughs> okay. Like that. Yeah, that was, uh, I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a little passionate about that. Sorry. I could go on about that for a long time. <laughs> no, that's cool. I appreciate it. You know, I had a conversation with Don Wittrick uh, a couple of months ago about this topic and, you know, I was just telling him, I said, listen, uh, in order for things to get better, this is not going to be on people of color. Uh, telling white people are going to have to take up the mantle to do this 
and let people of color sort of build institutions where we build black businesses or uh, we have to start some charter schools uh, that are more Afrocentric or whatever, we do that. Uh, we <clears throat> do other things in terms of building institutions that will make our communities better. But in terms of the larger system, as you mentioned, we've been talking about this for years. We don't control those systems. We don't control the finances that built those systems. Therefore, we can't stop them. We can push the needle, but we can't wait on the needle being pushed before we take it upon ourselves to build those institutions that benefit us. You know, I had someone on my show before who uh, was an executive at a tech company. And at first, you know, we, she started talking about inclusion, but then she said, we need to build our own tech companies where you then, where we can set the culture and hire more people of color to bring them into the fold of Silicon Valley. And that's how I look at it as, you know, we, we got to build uh, even in the school systems. And I know charter schools don't have, they're not the sexy thing to talk about because they have their problems. Mm -hmm. But if you can, within that system, again, build those schools that have that specific mission of, we're going to work with these students of color. We're going to bring in their culture. We're going to bring in, you know, positivity. We're going to do this as opposed to that. I think that would be a win-win. Oh yeah, God. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of different ways to come at these issues. And I think everyone has their own role um, to play. And I feel like for me, my role is trying to help these conversations about race and equity um, enter the mainstream education community because um, a lot of these issues are not being talked about widely in circles um, among white, white educators. And I just think, I just want to normalize it. I just want to say it's okay to talk about race. Um, a lot of white educators uh, still feel like it's good to be colorblind, that that's a bragging point to say that you don't, uh, you don't see color. And they don't realize that what they're saying is, um, you know, you're not if you don't see color, then you don't recognize the full humanity of your students because their race and ethnicity is part of who they are. And um, a lot of white educators, we just don't get that because in the background, I don't really know, you know, my heritage, we don't have a white culture, we don't have white music, um, you know what I'm saying? So it's not, for us to feel like we can be colorblind, like that feels like a good thing. But um, a lot of times we miss the fact that, you know, ethnicity, it's a, it's a key part of a lot of our students' identity. And so we can't pretend that we don't see it. We can't pretend that we don't want to talk about it or that it's a bad thing to talk about um, because it's not. Race is not this shameful thing that we have to pretend we don't see or that we don't acknowledge. Um, and we just you know, need to act like everyone's being treated exactly the same because that's just ahistorical. The data just doesn't back that up. There, we're not all being treated the same. Kids are not all being treated the same in schools and kids of color are being underserved. So I could just go on about this. So I'm just going to let that go and say, uh, that's what I feel like my role is. I just want to bring this into a mainstream conversation and just normalize it. So we're talking about this stuff and we're getting this out here because what else am I building this platform for? If I'm not making a bigger difference, yes, I want to support and encourage teachers, but um, that's the issue that I'm, that's the hill I'm willing to die on when it comes to standing up for kids. Okay, so let's jump into pricing. Whew. I'm still working, working on this myself because mm -hmm. I want to get paid my worth. 
But I also understand the population I am working with. And that's right. On Facebook, you saw Pernille Rip. That's another educator just pulled who doesn't pull any punches at all. She went into how these yeah, Pernille's great are gouging educators. And so when I think about, man, I want to get paid my worth, but understanding like I, I want to be careful of my pricing because I want it, you look, I want to provide value to educators, but I'm also with my side hustle. I want to get paid you know, my, my, my worth. I don't want to put all these hours in for scraps, but I understand, look, they make what I make too, you know? So they have families, they got mortgages, you know, they got dreams of vacation or whatever. So when they invest in themselves, I don't want to put them out of pocket, you know, when I do this. So, how should an entrepreneur go about pricing their products or services? Yeah, I think pricing is, is one of the hardest questions. And I feel like it's different for every person um, because what each of us brings to the table is different. Our experience is different. The, the product or service we're offering is different. So it's really easy to look at what other people are doing and, and say, oh, I should be doing that. And um, I don't think it's good to know the market, to know what else people, what other people are charging. But I don't think that that should be the basis of deciding what you should charge for your own services and prices because you're unique. And, um, you know, each, each person that you are, especially if you're delivering services or you're working with school districts, you know, their needs and their budget are all unique. So um, I don't really have like a one size fits all sort of pricing model. There's a lot of uh, factors that contribute to that. Um, you know, in the entrepreneurial space, they talk a lot now about, you know, like value-based pricing. So you're supposed to base something not on what you do, but on the value that you're bringing to the organization. Um, and I, I don't quite see how that works, honestly, because um, I think there has to be some value to the materials themselves. So if I tell you that my book is going to change your entire life, there's going to be one sentence in that book that is going to shift everything for you you're still not going to pay $3,000 for a book. I can't put a book on Amazon for $3,000, right? So the, the service or the product that I'm providing has to also have some value in itself. It, you know, there, it has to match. There, there has to be an alignment there. So, um, you know, and I think the other piece to consider here is also who's paying for it. Because if you have, um, if a school's paying for it, it could be a grant. Um, you might be selling directly to teachers. Most of what I do is selling directly to teachers. So, um, you know, my approach there is, is price low. Because as you said, you, we know what teaching salaries are. Um, I know what it's like to try to make it on a teaching salary. You don't have a lot of extra budget. And I think, honestly, a lot of teachers are rightfully resentful that they're paying out of their own pocket to have resources to do their job well. Um, that's tiring. That's really tiring on them. So, um, you know, I, I, try to, I try to keep prices affordable. And the benefit um, to me personally is that when I keep those prices low, it means more teachers are able to use that resources. Um, you know, I don't want to pour a year of my life into creating something that only 10 people can ever afford to buy. You know, I want to, I'm, the things that I create, I'm really proud of, I'm really excited about, and I want to get them into the hands of as many people as possible. So, um, you know, I make a lot of stuff free for that reason. Um, and then I price things that are for teachers. I price them very affordably. Um, you know, the 40 hour teacher work week club, it, it could have easily been, if this was, if that was like a productivity or time management resource for entrepreneurs, it would have been probably five times the price easily 
because um, it, you know it's it's one hundred twenty nine dollars, and it's hard to even find something in the entrepreneurial space that's an online course for one hundred twenty nine dollars, right? But I did that because um, I wanted more teachers to benefit from it. And when you price things affordably. Um, your work can get out there, things gain traction faster, you get more social proof, you get more word of mouth because more people have used them, and you're able to make a bigger impact. So that's just a win-win for everyone as far as I'm concerned. So when it comes to selling directly to teachers, I, I say price affordably. Um, and that's where I do most of my work. I don't sell directly to um, districts very often. Um, unless a teacher will come to them and say, you know, Angela created this amazing thing. I really want you to bring her in to speak about it. Or I want you to buy school licensing for this course or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I hear you. I hear you. And we're trying to get into the course game ourselves. We've been approved by a local mm -hmm. university to offer CEUs here our courses. Because again, I love what I do. I'm all about leveling up teachers and I want to provide value to them also want to value my time so i only have so many personal days mm -hmm. so i don't want to take a personal day just to go work somewhere else i would like to person personal days ago oh, we got this money coming in let's go to hawaii girl and enjoy ourselves <laughs> uh, but i will go you know i will go to a school you know uh but it has to be something where i go you know this is actually worth me taking you know this day off of work to go work uh, you know, basically. So I love the course game and uh, I, I, I can't wait to kind of jump into it. And, and there's a lot of different platforms out there too for educators who are thinking about doing that. Uh, and I'm glad that you talked about this. So I want to throw another thing out there since you spoke about, since you just mentioned this. When you're starting this 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 business, you are going to have to make not only personal investments, but financial investments into your company. When should an educator know when and how much of their income, and as we mentioned earlier, we only make so much of it, uh, to invest of their personal income into their business? You know, because it is what it is. Like, I... I've paid for, you know, get my website designed. I pay, I pay square space, a monthly fee for, to maintain the site. I pay a monthly fee to SoundCloud to get unlimited storage for my podcast. So, and, and then we're going to have to pay for these courses to be on Thinkific. Stuff can add up. Well, it will add up. So how much should a teacher, I guess, expect mentally just you know I'm not giving a dollar price but mentally what should they think to should they expect in terms of making the investment well I think you have to decide whether you are willing to give up time or willing to give up dollars because it's going to be one of the two so you know that's what you're basically doing when you're paying for these services um, and you're and you're paying for the support and people to do things for you like you're your web design, uh, you freed up time for yourself to work on other aspects of your business. And if you use that time to do things that are going to help you level up, then that was a worthwhile investment. Um, but in other cases, you may not be able to do that. Um, so you really have to, you have to weigh which resource is more abundant. And in the beginning, it's going to be time. Like you, you just, the money is just not there, right? <laughs> it's just not there. So you're going to have to move some things around in your schedule and just put this first. It means saying no to social obligations. It means 
you know, staying off of social media in terms of, you know, just sitting there scrolling for hours, looking through stuff and, you know, just look for those little pockets of time throughout your day. Um, you know, you'd be amazed what you can accomplish when you only have like 15 minutes, right? So never write off a block of time as being too short to start doing something to move your business forward or to start just building the life that you want, start moving yourself towards your goals, really invest that time. And then, you know, as you gain traction, you can start thinking about the trade-off there is, okay, where am I willing to spend some dollars? Where could I spend some dollars here to free up more time? And then make sure that you're using that time that you get um, to invest back in your business, that you're not, you know, frittering it away, that you're really taking that time seriously because you've got to have that hustle and grind mode in the beginning. And then, you know, slowly over time, you can start to invest more. And, you know, I'll say that I wish that I had invested uh, sooner. You know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't make a ton of money off of my first book, but I made enough that I could have, I could have gotten some people to help me do things. And I could have paid for some services instead of doing like this hacky job and doing it all myself. You know, like, um, for example, I use, um, I use Buffer to schedule out Facebook posts. So you know, once a quarter I go through, I save a whole bunch of links and everything. Once a quarter I go through, I check it out, I figure out what are the things that I really want to share that really are going to add value to teachers' lives. I schedule the mountain buffer and, you know, you got to pay for buffer. I, I think it's like, I don't know, 10 bucks a month, 15 bucks a month or something like that. But, you know, in the beginning I was for years, even after I was making money in my business, I was still too cheap to want to pay the 10 bucks a month for buffer. And so what am I doing every single evening? I'm looking around like, what am I going to put on Facebook? And so every evening I'm, you know, Try dealing with social media posts because I didn't want to pay the 10 bucks. So, you know, look, when you're thinking about investing back in your business, look for those easy wins, like trading 10 bucks a month to not have to spend every evening on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram posting things like do it, you know, look for those, those really easy things that aren't super expensive. That might be one way that you can sort of free up more time um, without it costing you a lot of dollars. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Another great gym dropped by Angela Watson. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So uh, this has been uh, such an amazing uh, podcast, uh, but as all good things uh, must end, as they say, before we go, what are your thoughts on the rise of the entrepreneur and what is your call to action for those educators who are ready to take the leap? I think that, I think the real challenge right now is standing out. There's a lot of other people in this space right now who are competing for, um, you know, if we're talking about entrepreneurs, then they're competing for teachers' time, teachers' attention, teachers' money. So you really have to be the best at what you do. And there's just no room for mediocrity anymore. Um, you know, a few years ago, the internet was still sort of, and social media was still like sort of the wild, wild west, and anyone could get attention online. Anyone could start a page and, you know, Facebook would give them you know, organic views and there weren't that many blogs. So, you know, you could start a blog and people would read it. Um, the cream has to rise to the top at this point because people are so saturated in content. There's so many podcasts, there's so many blogs, there's so many things to, to read on social media that you have to be the best at what you do. You have to be sharing awesome, high quality resources. Um, and there's no room for mediocrity. So my call to action for, for educators who want to take that leap is to figure out what problem you are solving for teachers or principals or whoever your target demographic is, and then serve that audience with a really single-minded focus. So create a solid mix of uh, free content and paid content. And free might be something like the podcast, right? So, um, you know, you're giving away your wisdom, you're putting uh, experts in front of them that they can learn from, 
you know, offer some things that offer real value for free so people can see who you are and what you know and what you're able to do and, and build that trust um, and to get your, your biggest ideas out into the world, right? Because some of the most important things that, that we need to talk about, for example, equity is not something that I would ever monetize, right? That's something that I do because uh, it's my obligation. It's my responsibility as a citizen of this planet to talk about equity. Um, so there are things that you're going to do for free because you want to help people, because you believe in the cause, um, because you just want to you believe in it so much that you just want to get it out there to as many people as possible. And then there's going to be other stuff that's more in depth that, you know, you really put a lot of time and energy into and that you got to charge for. And um, don't be afraid to charge for that. That's something that I've, I've struggled with over uh, my career is, is really owning the fact that, um, that this is my life's work. This is what I do. And if I don't charge for it, then I have to do it on the side while I'm working a full-time job to pay the bills. Right? So because I don't want to just do this in my spare time whenever I have time, because I want to really dedicate my life to supporting teachers and helping teachers, um, I have to charge for work. And that is what enables me to offer the paid things for free. So the people who are buying things for me are, are making those free resources available, helping to make those available for people who can't afford to buy from me, or maybe just, you know, aren't, aren't willing to, or aren't able to, whatever at this time. So I do think that that mix is important. I think they can complement each other. I think it's good to have lower priced items um, and also more premium offerings. So that way people can just sort of choose the solutions that they need. And that will also help you to diversify your income streams. So if one thing dries up, then your whole business isn't going to crumble. So um, that's what I would say. Stand out, um, really focus on, on serving your audience in a really powerful way, in a variety of ways. And finally, don't look for a pre-established pathway to follow. So I'm friends with lots of successful entrepreneurs and not one of us has even a remotely similar journey. We all have very different end goals. We have different core values. We have different areas of expertise. And as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, what's really scary about the entrepreneurship journey is that there is no roadmap to follow and you really have to carve out your own path. Um, but you have to embrace that part. And I think that's what really makes it a rewarding adventure. The, that lack of prescribed system means that the possibilities for you are endless. And so there's really no limit what you can make this job into. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you again, <laughs> Angela Watson, for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. People, you know how I do this. The video cast is going up on YouTube. I need you to, to subscribe and leave some comments. The podcast is going up on iTunes and SoundCloud. Again, follow, subscribe, leave some comments. Your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show, and I need her to know that I'm dope like that. So I need y'all to show me some love. People, as always, invest in you, EDU, peace.